Hello and welcome to the Luke Miller Podcast. And this week we've got a bit of a special edition, I want to say, as we take a look at Passion Week. It is Holy Week down here, well, everywhere. And and with Easter on the horizon, I thought it would be good for us to take a look at something more in the theme of Easter. And with some of the ministries that are going on here at Sunrise, we've got Pastor Cliff and Backshed Bible Study walking through the day by day what happened in the Passion narrative. And I thought it would be good for us to also take a little different approach, which is taking a look at the uh, archaeological perspective of Easter and also historical geographical uh, nature of this as well. Uh, and, And this brings out a bit of my inner Indiana Jones, if you will, as we take a look at this. But I think it's a good thing for us to take a look at. It helps set the context. And you will have heard me say so many times in church that, as the Germans call it, there's something important called the Seitzenleben, which means the original hearers of the word. What's the original context in which we, uh, in which we read a passage and, and for people who are reading it? For us in the Easter story, I think it's really good for us to say, what does it look like uh, as far as historically, as geographically, as archaeologically, what happened during this, this week where Jesus was crucified and rose again? And as we do that, there's a few things that I want to kind of lay out as far as ground rules go when it comes to talking about archaeology. Archaeology is uh, a great science where uh, you're able to unearth physical data for biblical events. It's, it's great to use. I love archaeology as an apologetic tool because it allows us to start the conversation of saying, listen, we know that these are historical events that happened, and now let's start to take a look at the fact that if the historical events are true, then now maybe just maybe (laughs) the God behind it is true as well. And it allows us to make that segue from, I understand that this is real. Now I can also understand that God is real as well. And so uh, it has been a great tool then, something that I really enjoy uh, talking about. But there's also a few ground rules when it comes to archaeology. One, archaeology can tell us the history and it can tell us that certain events took place. What it doesn't allow us to do is uh, is say with specifics what was said or talked about, right? We know that, that Jesus was in Capernaum at this time. However, we don't know what Jesus said. We're able to take a look at archaeological data and understand that, that this was here, this was there, but we're not able to actually put words in the mouth of anyone and, and, and construct a full story. We're able to construct uh, a basic narrative of what we know happened when we see data and we see that events related to that data were, were true. Uh, and so this allows us to kind of take a, a step forward as we go into the Easter story uh, as well. And I want to cover a few things uh, today, and we'll see how long this this ends up being. But the, the first is understanding historical geography as well. That's saying, where did this all happen? Now, if you've got your Bibles with you, hopefully you also have some maps at the back of the Bible as well, where it shows the land of Israel, because it might be good for a bit of a cross-reference to understand what exactly 
and where exactly everything is happening. Uh, because there's a lot of movement that happens over the weeks um, prior to, to Easter. And, and Christians of every tradition consider Holy Week to be a profoundly important time to observe and to remember the passion, the trial, the death, and the resurrection of, of Jesus. The days prior to the death of Jesus received considerable attention from all four of the Gospels, and they have been a, uh, the subject of substantial geographical and archaeological research for, for more than a century. Uh, three of the Synoptic Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, observed that Jesus traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem, as did thousands of others for the observance of Passover. Uh, and and they mentioned that, that he passed by Jericho in Matthew 20, 29, and the Jordan River and immediately north of the Dead Sea. This indicates that that his group probably traveled through the Transjordan area, uh, avoiding Samaritan territory, which we know uh, was something that Jewish people generally tended to avoid. Hence, Jesus' story of, of the Good Samaritan. Now, crossing the Jordan opposite Jericho, Jesus and his disciples, uh, they passed through Jericho and probably would have seen Herod's palace on the right as they started up the road to Jerusalem. And and I've done this, although not walking, many times. And this is not an easy walk. Uh, it is not an easy drive either for those who like uh, who have car sickness. Uh, but it's also not easy on the cars because as you make your way from Jericho, which is the lowest city as far as elevation goes in the world, um, it's a hike of about 3,200 feet or about uh, 1,000 meters for those Canadians who are listening to this uh, in, in elevation. It goes through the Judean wilderness at at 825 feet uh, in but it starts at that 250 meters or 800 uh, feet below sea level and finds itself at the end of it at about 2,500 feet in Jerusalem. So you're going from a very hot and humid climate down by Jericho up to the, the higher areas of, of Israel with 2,500 feet above sea level to get a context of everything that was happening, uh, and, and kind of lay out the plan. And during the days uh, leading up to Passover, we also read that Jesus visited uh, the village of Bethany, which is located about two miles from Jerusalem on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And, and I've talked about this a bit as well, where, where we understand Jerusalem to look like a bowl that you would put cereal in or ice cream or whatever you'd like to put in it. Uh, and the city of Jerusalem and the old city itself is at the, the bottom of that bowl. And there's the rim of the bowl is all the hills around Jerusalem, one of them being the Mount of Olives. So Jesus uh, made his way uh, from two miles out of Bethany over the, the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. Uh, and while, while dining with his disciples at the home of a, a friend named Simon, a woman named Mary 
whose exact identity is debated, anointed Jesus with very expensive perfume made of pure nard. We read this in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, and Matthew chapter 26, verse 7. Now, now nard is an, an aromatic ointment. Uh, it ha- was usually kept because of how expensive it was uh, in alabaster bottles. And we are able to find on many dig sites uh, re- remnants of those alabaster bottles. In fact, one of the things, if you've ever gone on a dig site, that you will find a lot of is something we call pot shard, uh, shards, which is just pieces of pots, pieces of bottles that have been cracked over time, and you find all these little uh, little pieces uh, of them everywhere. Uh, the way alabaster bottles were framed were long-necked glass bottles, uh, and, and usually were found um, a lot of times uh, in tombs. Uh, they're used uh, for perfume in tombs from Roman times and around Jerusalem. And because nard was a, a very costly substance, believed to have come from, uh, from what we know, the Himalayan region of the Holy Land, and it got there by travel uh, by boat uh, through the Red Sea or via the Red Sea and the trade routes that we've, we, we know to exist, it was often ca- uh, kept in less breakable, uh, a less breakable container than glass. Uh, alabaster was a, a beautiful stone from Egypt and was considered the best way to keep ointments. Such bottles have, have been discovered in the Holy Land at different sites. Uh, we've found, I should say, we archaeologists have found beautiful alabaster jars, some in the shape of animals. We know that uh, they were found in the tomb of uh, King uh, Tutankhamun of Egypt. Uh, and so we know that this was a very expensive as, as we read about this um, as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. Uh, and, and Palm Sunday, Jesus would have ridden from Bethany over the top of the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and into Jerusalem. And so began what we call Holy Week, where we are right now. And, and for Jews leading up to this week was Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was a, a period of a preparation, uh, Holy Week was, as, as John reports, uh, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover, and that's in John chapter 11. Now, the pools that we read about in Scripture, like the Silwam Pool or the Bethsaida Pool, um, uh, are, are something that were actually uh, fairly frequent in Jerusalem, and especially for Passover. We call these mikvahs, uh, and there was lots of mikvahs around Jerusalem, and it was used for ceremonial cleaning. Some of the larger homes in Jerusalem had their own mikvahs. Some of the larger homes today still have mikvahs. But what we also see is that from excavations that took place on the Temple Mount in 1967, uh, they uncovered more than 20 different mikvahs of different sizes in the area in front of, of the broad stairway or the entrance to the Temple Mount, meaning that uh, as people made their way to Jerusalem and as people made their way to the Temple Mount, uh, they had to go through ceremonial cleansing. 
Now, I know we're talking about Easter, but there's a fun fact that happens there also with Christmas uh, and the Christmas story and the shepherds. The shepherds ran uh, to Bethlehem to see what the angels had told them, but they were unclean. And so they would have had to go and take a bath or a mikvah uh, before they could go and tell everyone. Uh, and uh, and so we see from, again, archaeological remnants of 1967 of the Temple Mount that, that there are several of these uh, lining up uh, at the entrance or at the base of where we know the Temple Mount to be and the, the broad stair, uh, staircase or broad stairway at that entrance so people were able to uh, be clean as they went up to the Temple Mount. Now, now, one of the things that uh, we can see uh, as well is, uh, and I want to transition because I'm kind of walking through a bit of the story and giving the historical geography uh, and some of the things that go along with it and what would need to take place in order for them to happen, uh, which really brings us uh, uh, to the Passover meal or the Seder or the upper room uh, which we read about in Mark chapter 14 and in Luke chapter 22. Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal. Um, however, archaeology, um, uh, well, they took it in an upper room within uh, the city of Jerusalem. But, but unfortunately, archaeology can tell us nothing about the location of this building. Although homes in Jerusalem have been found, which could uh, sustain uh, a second floor, um, we, we don't have an exact location on this, right? Uh, and so, so we don't find this or, or, uh, in any way or know which house it would be. It would be something along the lines of saying, uh, here in, in California or in Fair Oaks, uh, we had a meal. And when someone says, oh, where are you having that meal? And we said, in a two-story house, <laughs> right? There's going to be a lot of two-story houses that people can can find. But this is a, a sacred, it's a somber meal uh, observed within the city, despite the fact that Jesus was staying in Beth. Bethany demonstrates that the law regarding celebrating Passover within the chosen city, Jerusalem, was followed. This is something from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 5 and 6, which tells them that they need to make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem and celebrating uh, Passover needs to be uh, taking place within the chosen city. And, and immediately after uh, the Passover, we get to really the heart of Passion Week in many ways. After completing the Passover meal, uh, which, of course, we call the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples, of course, minus one, Judas, went to the garden across the, key, across the Kidron Valley called Gethsemane. And we read this in John chapter 18. It was, his, uh, it was his custom to go to this spot to pray when in Jerusalem. And we know that from Luke chapter 22. What made this place of prayer is unclear. We don't know why uh, Jesus chose that. However, we know one interesting theory behind the prayer spot is that it might be associated with a place where David, while fleeing Jerusalem from Absalom's rebellion, paused to worship and pray as he went over the Mount of Olives in 2 Samuel chapter 15. 
So, so there is a loose connection that, uh, and as far as what made this a place of prayer uh, for Jewish people, holding on to locations of historical events is something that's very important. Something for that's very important for us as Christians as well. So, knowing that this was a place where David, who Jesus was of the line of. Uh, stop to pray that Jesus was doing the same thing, uh, same thing himself. And again, that's in Second Samuel chapter fifteen. Uh, today, if you went to Jerusalem, and I should say that that the uh, that all of this was taking place probably about two miles from our our house or our apartment where we lived in Jerusalem, just down from the Mount of Olives. But if you were in the Garden of Gethsemane today, you'll find the the Gethsemane Church of All Nations. And it stands on the foundation of the early, an an early Byzantine period church, which was a, a flat rock that the early church tradition marks as the spot where Jesus prayed in agony before uh, his betrayal. Um, and and we see that in in um, three thirty A.D. Uh, the church uh, a church historian uh, of Caesarea mentions the spot as a place where people often came to pray. And within fifty years of that historical writing in three thirty uh, uh, A.D., we see that the first church was constructed there. Now it's kind of a fun fact. I think it's a fun fact for for Jerusalem to, uh, or in Israel, I should say, uh, there are churches everywhere. A lot of them Byzantine period churches uh, or very old churches. Greek Orthodox uh, churches are, are also scattered everywhere. Um, and one of the things that people often did was resurrect churches in locations where they thought biblical events took place. There is two different churches or a church in each place of the garden tomb, because there are two different places where people say the garden tomb could be. Uh, and and maybe that's something that uh, we'll have to talk about on another podcast. I think in true tr- tradition here, I'm already uh, probably over the time that I normally take, uh, and somehow I'm turning this into a series. Uh, but, but anyways, um, but churches are, are, are placed and and were built. One, uh, the Greeks were did a lot of this when they read the Bible, and it was kind of early versions of archaeology. When they thought that an event of the Bible happened in a place, they would put a church there so that they could could celebrate that. And and that is the same way with the Garden of of Gethsemane. Uh, and so, so we know that. Um, that as Jesus was praying there, we know that there is some historical tradition of people praying there before Jesus and after Jesus. In fact, it grew even more after Jesus's time. Uh, and so uh, I think that's an important important thing for us us to note. Now, as we as we take a look a little further into this, I think it's, you know, I could go on for well, I could go on for a while on this, but I want to take a little bit of time just as we finish up uh, to to take a look at the death of of Jesus. Now, 
because because it's important to understand the context of everything that's happening here. Uh, readers of, of the New Testament might think that crucifixion was a rare form of execution, which began with Jesus. Uh, in fact, uh, a 5th century historian, a Greek historian, describes the case of, of Darius the Great in 522 uh, BC, crucified uh, he or Darius the Great crucified three thousand Babylonians. Uh, whether this marks the origin of of this type of death, we don't know. We also know historically that Alexander the Great, after his uh, siege of Tyre in Phoenicia, uh, which was uh, modern day Lebanon, crucified two thousand survivors. Uh, regardless. We know that it was the most wretched of deaths, uh, and this is also mentioned by Josephus, one of the great Jewish historians. Um, Josephus, Josephus, sorry, I should say, declared after he witnessed the execution of Jews after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. The Romans did not crucify their fellow citizens, only foreigners and typically enemies of the state and people of lower status. And in 1968, the remains of a man in his 20s named John, or Yohanan, uh, were discovered in Israel. Uh, Upon examining the bones, a part of a rusty nail was found intact in the heel bone, indicating that the the man named John had been crucified. And, And to this date, this man is the only person in history to show evidence of crucifixion. He was executed sometime in the mid-first century A.D. Now, I, I say this because understanding how people are buried, or I should say are not buried, um, they're put in ossuaries, which are little boxes uh, where they put, uh, put their bones. Um, understanding that, um, it would be very tough to have something preserved. It's not like today where you will have a casket. And you'd be able to, you could be able to open the casket and, and find the remains intact. You don't find that in, in Jewish culture. Uh, and so to find, to have an archaeological find to say, yes, crucifixion is real, is actually a very important find as far as archaeologists go. Because it allows us to see, and again, this is mid-first century, uh, that this was actually something that happened. All right, and so it adds a bit of historicity to uh, the passion narrative that we see. You know, after Jesus had been beaten, Jesus began to carry his cross or the crossbar uh, to the place called Golgotha for execution. And en route to this spot, Roman soldiers forced Simon of Cyrene, uh, which is a city in Libya, if we're looking at our maps, to carry the cross. Cyrene actually had a very large Jewish population, and the name Simon suggests that this man was Jewish as well, and so was probably in Jerusalem for the Passover, like tens of thousands of other Jews from all over the Mediterranean world who made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. In Mark's gospel, it actually informs us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus, so it actually gives a bit of, of history. Uh, and, and from uh, an archaeology discovery, which was in 1941, a sealed tomb in the Kidron Valley, which is just outside the city of, of Jerusalem, 
revealed its contents, um, which included 11 ossuaries, several of the names etched into the limestone, but of special interest was one with the names Alexander and Simon printed on the front. And on the back were the words Simon slash Alexander, son of Simon. All right. And it's been suggested that this ossuary was not only the container for the bones of Alexander, the son of Simon, but also for those of Simon himself. And and included in that ossuary, which was like, a, like I said, kind of an above stone box, um, was uh, two sets of bones that were discovered in it. Uh, many scholars think that this box actually belonged to Alexander, son of Simon, who carried the cross of Jesus and possibly uh, Simon himself. Uh, And this tomb, uh, interestingly enough, as I think it's interesting, did not contain Alexander's brother, Rufus. Um, This name does pop up in Rome in the list of Christians whom Paul greets, though, in Romans chapter 16. So it is possible that this Rufus is the other son of Simon who carried uh, the cross for Jesus. So you can see there's actually a, a, a very interesting lineage that's happening happening there. Now, now I want to just finally finish up, and I know I've said that about three times already, by saying, where is Golgotha? It's another question that a lot of people have asked over the years. Uh, And the Bible locates the place of crucifixion outside the city, which keeps with Jewish practice that the dead are buried outside the camp or city. The other clue concerning the location is that it says at the place where Jesus crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb. Uh, in which no one had ever been laid. We read this in John chapter 19, 41. And this makes it clear that Golgotha was close to some tombs. Uh, Again, an indication that this was an area outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Now, there are two sites that are thought to be the location of Golgotha in the early tomb of Christ. There is a massive church inside the old city of Jerusalem. However, Outside the walls of the very old city of Jerusalem, uh, different walls were constructed as the city grew. Um, But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre stands over the spot where the earliest Christian tradition places Golgotha and the tomb of Jesus. Uh, And in the fourth century, Queen Helena, uh, the mother of Emperor Constantine, visited Jerusalem and was shown um, and, and was shown. Uh, the very spot of of the Savior's sufferings and erected a church in true tradition with this. Um, And this area has been uh, covered uh, over uh, with a a shrine if you go in there now uh, and you're in the old city. Um, The the other part or the other location that we see um, and if you look at the walls and that circle the old city today, you'll soon realize that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or the Church of Holy Resurrection, as it's known in some literature that you may be reading, is situated within the defense walls of the northwestern quadrant. All right, so there's two sets of walls, and one of those is the defense walls that we see around the city. Uh, and so this could be this could make it somewhat difficult to put it as the exact location uh, because it would be very tough to get 
pilgrims there uh, and, and people who were wanting to visit it. So, I, so it's kind of interesting. But in 1883, um, there was another person who found the so-called garden tomb near a stone uh, along the Damascus Gate of the old city. Uh, and, and, and so we see that there then became two garden tombs. There's two places where you could visit and say, hey, this is where Jesus was. And there are many problems uh, with equating the garden tomb with that of Jesus. The first issue is typology of the tomb. Uh, and I don't want to get into it, but it looks like it, the way the tomb is constructed is from a much earlier age, probably um, uh, a first temple period, Iron Age uh, tomb. It's not the type of tombs that the Romans would have used. Um, furthermore, in an adjacent area to the garden tomb is other Iron Age or first temple period uh, tombs which have been uncovered. None of the, the tombs have anything, any resemblance of Roman times. Uh, and so everything that we see from the archaeological evidence is that the garden tomb, while picturesque, is probably not the actual garden tomb. We know that the garden tomb was, was near where the actual crucifixion took place. Uh, and, and we also know that the tomb where, where it's traditionally held uh, shows that there is uh, not only close proximity, but also the Roman style of tombs rather than a much earlier one. So you can see how archaeology and, and his, uh, historical geography can really play a picture in shaping how this story um, really plays out as far as what it looks like to us. Obviously, for me, this is something that I'm very passionate about as I've been to all of these locations. We lived not far from all of these locations and visited them many times. Uh, and let me tell you, I'll put a plug in now that if you have a chance to go to Jerusalem, you will know that uh, there is something so amazing about reading these stories and then actually visiting these locations and seeing what it actually looks like. Uh, and, and so one of the things that I love about archaeology, too, is if you have a chance to go to Jerusalem and get on a dig site for a day or two, it actually gets your hands dirty with, with biblical history in many ways. And so now I know that already I am uh, over probably by about 15 minutes. And I know that's a lot that we talked about today, but hopefully that gives you a bit of a picture as far as everything that's happening, as far as not everything, but a good chunk of, of what was happening in Jesus's journey, what we know happened, if some of those locations that are currently there today are actually where things happen, why Jesus was stopping to pray where he was praying. Um, and it gives you that historical context or the sites in Laban that we have, uh, we've talked about. So I'll leave it there. I hope you have a great Holy Week, and hopefully you're able to join us as we gather together this weekend, uh, whether it's for Good Friday, whether you're coming to the prayer labyrinth, whether you are, uh, whether you find yourself uh, joining us and having friends join us on Easter Sunday. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, and and thank you for letting me take this little rabbit trail for Easter uh, and and talk a bit about something that obviously I'm passionate about because I've gotten 15 minutes over. Uh, but we'll jump back into Facing Our Giants next week and and take a look and continue on in Nehemiah now. So take care. Have a great week. Happy Easter. And I'll be talking to you next week. Goodbye.